Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawasasi, and I am your host for the Fact Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am Fact's Vice President of Community Relations. Before we start today, I would like to give a heartfelt thank you to Amune for sponsoring Facts Roundtable podcast. It's hard to believe summer is almost over and we're gearing up for back to school. To help listeners get ready for the return to school, we're sitting down with Facts General Counsel and Director of Civil Rights Advocacy, Amelia Smith JD, to help us dust off our accommodation skills and revisit the basics so we can have some great success this year. We'll also be talking about current COVID 19 guidelines and protocol and how those are currently impacting students as well. Welcome, Amelia. It is always a joy to host you on the show as FACS General Counsel and Vice President of Civil Rights Advocacy, as well as a parent of a child with food allergies. We truly appreciate your insight and guidance that you bring to us with every time we meet on this podcast. Thanks so much, Caroline. I always enjoy recording these with you. Well, I thoroughly enjoy these. Before we get too deep into our topic, can you bring listeners up to speed as to which COVID-19 guidelines are still standing regarding school accommodations? I know many schools created temporary policy, my own kids included with that, which required students to eat in the classrooms. So can you help us understand if these COVID safeguards are still in place right now? Well, Caroline, the short answer to that is we really don't know. We have learned over the last two years that even though the CDC has had their guidelines out there that have varied year to year, school districts have their own policies and you know they're going to do what they're going to do. That said, the CDC did update their guidance for kindergarten through 12 schools on May 27th of 2022, so this year. And it's interesting to note that these guidance documents do not mention cafeterias at all. That was one of the the concerns in the food allergy community was that the initial CDC guidelines that were released back in 2020 suggested or recommended eating in the classroom, as you said, instead of the cafeteria. And we know the first set did not mention food allergies at all the first guidance after the letters that we wrote and other organizations sent letters to the director of the CDC the guidance was updated to stay eat in classrooms, but keep in mind the safety of children with food allergies. So the new guidance, as I said, does not mention cafeterias at all. It really only mentions mealtimes in two places. One is under the ventilation section, where it states to consider having activities, classes, or lunches outdoors when circumstances allow. And we know that for students with environmental allergies, this could cause an additional issue with pollen allergies and things of that nature, but it does not mention eating in the classroom. Other place where 
Meal times are discussed as in an FAQ section that asks during times when masking is used, what should we do during meal times? So it's important first to understand that this new CDC guidance document says that at low or medium COVID-19 community levels, masking could be used and that students should be supported by the school no matter the level of community transmission. Universal masking is only recommended in this new guidance in areas of high transmission. So back to our FAQ question of during times when masking is used, what should we do during mealtimes? This guidance document says during such times when high community levels are present and masks need to be removed from meals, schools can do the following to the extent possible to reduce risk of spread of the virus that causes COVID-19 improve ventilation or move mealtimes outdoors, reduce crowding or use cohorting, which they define as keeping people together in small groups and having each group stay together throughout an entire day while minimizing contact between cohorts. And of course, this minimizing contact between cohorts is what we saw as the justification for moving mealtimes from the cafeteria into the individual classrooms. But again, This document does not recommend meals in classrooms. It recommends meals outdoors. So it's a question of whether the CDC has finally accepted our concerns about children with food allergies in classes where meals are being consumed, or if it's a reflection of schools moving away from meals in the classroom last year to moving back into the cafeteria, or If it's just a matter of, well, we've been eating meals in classrooms for two years in the majority of the country, so it's already policy. So we really don't know what's going to happen. I know in my son's school, they are using the cafeteria as kind of like an additional gym. My son actually has archery practices in the cafeteria now. So I'm a little concerned that schools may have gotten used to using that space as an extra multi-purpose room and not able to move back. It'll just be interesting to see across the country. And of course, if you're having problems with your school, you can reach out to us. Whether your student's school is having mealtime in the cafeteria or in the classroom, it's important to note that there are several other provisions of this guidance document that was released in May that would be applicable under either circumstance, it would be very beneficial to families with food allergies. The first is, of course, hand hygiene, which we know has been a huge issue for some food allergy families prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. And the document recommends that schools should teach and reinforce proper hand washing to lower the risk of spreading viruses. And we also know that it also prevents the transfer of allergenic protein It also says that schools should monitor and reinforce these behaviors, especially during key times in the day, which is important, before and after eating and after recess, which we know these are some of the times that parents of students with food allergies really want the hands washed. Aside from when they come into school in the beginning of the morning, we've got the big areas covered under this document, which is great. And it also says that schools should provide adequate hand-washing supplies, including soap and water. One downside is it says if washing hands is not possible, schools should provide hand sanitizer containing at least 60% alcohol. And we know that hand sanitizer does not remove protein, 
But the part that I would hang my hat on in this line is if washing hands is not possible. You know, when is it truly not possible? And if you focus on that, you probably would have a better success at getting a hand washing protocol put into place in your accommodation plan. Another area of concern for families with food allergies that is discussed in this guidance document is cleaning and disinfection of the classrooms in the school environment. And the guidance document says that schools should clean surfaces at least once a day to reduce the risk of germs spreading by touching surfaces. So we at least have the once a day cleaning provision in here. So we know that if they are following these guidelines, you at least know that your student's environment's cleaned once a day. For the families that want desks and surfaces like that cleaned in between classes for older children and things of that nature, that's going to be an area that you have to negotiate with the school as usual. But at least you have this to go by saying that the surfaces should be clean. Now, the most important part of this guidance document and the part that really struck me as being beneficial to our families is that it actually has a section covering students with disabilities. And it states, of course, that federal and state disability laws require an individualized approach for working with children and youth with disabilities consistent with the child's IEP or Section 504 plan, which is what we have always focused on, of course, an individualized approach. And this actually documents that. And it states that reasonable modifications when necessary must be provided to ensure equal access to an in-person learning for students with disabilities, which we know that. But this isn't a COVID document, so that's important to note. And it says that administrators should consider additional prevention strategies to accommodate the health and safety of students with disabilities and protect their civil rights and equal access to safe in-person learning. So this section right here would be very important to those of us that are trying to get an individualized approach for additional prevention strategies to accommodate the health and safety of our students and their equal access. In previous podcasts where we have discussed these guidance documents and stated we really need to try to carve out some kind of added layer of protection for our students. If they're going to eat in the classroom, it needs to be in a larger room or the student have preferential seating or additional cleaning, hand washing, additional training, additional stock epinephrine, whatever it may be. This supports that. It also supports the theory that the schools can take an additional layer of prevention or protection and allow these classrooms with students with food allergies to actually eat in the cafeteria if they're not allowing other classes to do that. So that's an overview of the latest CDC guidance. Also of note, it's a March 22nd, 2022 U.S. Secretary of Education letter to educators and parents. This letter states As with eligible students with disabilities who have severe food allergies, this is the only mention of food allergies that I have found in any of the updated documents. For students with severe food allergies, health plans may be included as a part of the student's IEP or Section 504 plan to ensure that the health and safety of the student in the school environment is properly addressed with appropriate privacy protections in place. So we've already known this and we've discussed this, that you you can always attach a health plan if you have an IHP or an IHCP to your IEP or Section 504 and incorporate it in your accommodation plans by reference. So this mentions that. But it also says, for example, for some students with disabilities, the provision of FAPE, which of course stands for Free and Appropriate Public Education, 
in the Least Restrictive Environment, LRE, may require that the IEP or Section 504 plan addresses appropriate prevention and risk-reducing strategies, such as sanitizing or avoiding shared use of personal or classroom items. So again, we're looking at appropriate prevention and risk-reducing strategies for students with food allergies. It also states that IEP placement in Section 504 teams can address continuation of school-wide layered prevention strategies recommended by the CDC to address the special circumstances of a student and to ensure that the student with a disability can receive a free and appropriate public education or FAPE in the least restrictive environment, which they, of course, have as LRE. So again, it is telling these IEP teams and 504 teams to look at the individual needs of the student with a disability, in our case, a food allergy, when looking at school-wide prevention strategies. And this were not approaches that were made in the original document. Of course, we know that food allergies were not even mentioned, as I said, until everyone got busy fact included, in writing to the CDC director. So we went from no mention of food allergies to a brief mention saying keeping in mind, you know, the safety of students with food allergies and referencing the over 100 page voluntary guidelines for managing food allergies in school to this very specific mention of food allergies and really telling the schools that they have to tailor their procedures in the 504 plans or IEPs to the individual student's needs, which is an improvement, even though we really cannot say definitively whether we're going to be eating in classrooms or cafeterias. This is big news. This is really important news. So now based on this data, how does a parent find this information? So if they're working with the school and they're receiving some pushback, how do they find this data to present? I will make sure that you have links to drop in the show notes, Caroline, to the updated, the May guidance document. Maybe we can break it down where it's the main guidance document and also the FAQ page that I discuss and the actual letter from the Secretary of Education. So listeners, check the show notes and I will have every single link to anything that Amelia provides to us and anything that she references in today's podcast. We got you covered. So now let's start right in with the basics. What are food allergy accommodations, Amelia? And then who has the right to request the accommodations? So as briefly mentioned in your previous question in our discussion, food allergy accommodations are the accommodations necessary to ensure the safety and equal inclusion or opportunity of students with food allergies while participating in school events and school-sponsored events. Under the ADAAA, which is the Americans with Disabilities Act Amendment Act of 2008, which is the law that defines disabilities for the purpose of Section 504, food allergies can be a disability as they affect one or more major life activity. Congress set out a huge list of major life activities and then said that it wasn't an all-inclusive list, that there could be other major life activities. But for the purpose of food allergies, we look at eating, of course, breathing, because we know that anaphylaxis can affect breathing. We look at some of the other things that they mentioned, which were system functions. So we know that immune system is listed, and we know that food allergies are an immunological reaction. 
the digestive system, which we know is involved. So, of course, cardiac system, other systems, respiratory that are all involved. All of these are involved in major life activities that can be affected by food allergies. So that's how we get to the definition that food allergies are a disability for purposes of Section 504. We also know that accommodations for food allergies can come in several different documents. One would be an Individualized Education Plan, or IEP, for Section 504 plan, or an Individual Health Care Plan. For purposes of this discussion, I'll hit on IEPs briefly. Of course, to have an IEP, you have to have one of 13 specifically enumerated conditions listed in the IDEA statutes, and food allergies really don't rise to that level. So if you have a student who has an IEP for another disability, you can include your accommodations there. But that's not where we look to really for specific food allergy accommodations. We also know that some schools prefer to do IHPs or IHCPs, which are individual health plans or individual health care plans for food allergies. And often schools want to offer that to a family instead of a legally protected accommodation plan. Many of the OCR regions will take an IHCP or an IHP and give it the same effect as a Section 504 plan, but really IHPs and IHCPs, as defined by the National Association of School Nurses, or NASN, are medical documents for the specific medical needs of a student to be addressed. So, you know, when is medication given? How do we respond to a reaction? Those are the appropriate things to be in an IHP or an IHCP, not classroom modifications and accommodations, things like that. So really, when we talk about food allergy accommodations, the main accommodation plan that we focus on is a 504 plan under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. All of that said, To answer your question about who has the right to request accommodations, really the school has an obligation under Child Find to identify students that qualify for these plans. But we know in reality that really isn't happening. Every school that has emergency action plans for students with allergies should be identifying these students and reaching out to the parents to establish a 504 plan. But that just doesn't happen in most cases. So as a parent, you have the right to request accommodations for your child with a food allergy if the school doesn't reach out to you. So now does a doctor need to be involved? So when a parent enrolls their child in school, do they need to see a doctor to get this diagnosis, to start this process, or can they just simply start the process? Parents can simply start the process, but often it is beneficial to have support of your physician. Of course, in fact, we recommend that that is a board-certified allergist who is an expert in this area who can give you the support that you need and can provide supporting documents to the school if necessary. And actually, as far as supporting documents, we have a sample doctor letter in our Civil Rights Advocacy Resource Center on the FACT webpage that is a sample letter for your doctor to complete to help support you and to provide supporting documentation for your request for accommodations. So now diving deeper into accommodations, how do parents go about starting that process to seeking accommodation? As in every seemingly daunting task and process, it's always helpful to do some background research. 
One good place to do that, of course, is on the FACT website where we really break down these accommodation laws and accommodation plans and have tons of documentation and resources for you. It's also good to research your school district itself and to find out who your 504 coordinator is for your district or for your school. Some districts have one that governs the whole district. Some have one for each school. So it's important to find out who the 504 coordinator is for your student. Once you know who your 504 coordinator is, the actual first step in the real process is to send a request for an evaluation for a Section 504 plan to the 504 coordinator. This request should be in writing, and an email actually is a writing for purposes of doing it in writing. I like to do these in emails because you can copy other people on the email. You can copy your student's principal. You can copy their guidance counselor. You can copy their school nurse. Anyone that would be a good starting point for this process and might be able to help you make sure it gets to who it needs to get to. Also, by doing it in writing and by email, of course, you have proof of when you sent it because every school, every state has a timeline in which they must complete these evaluations. But that is going to vary depending on your state or your school district. Some states have their specific timeline for Section 504. Some use their IDEA timelines and even IDEA. A timelines vary state to state, but it's important to note that there is a deadline in which they must have completed the evaluation. And to make things even easier for you, we have a sample referral request letter in our Civil Rights Advocacy Resource Center of the FACT website. Wonderful. And thank you, Amelia, for bringing up those resources, because I want to make sure listeners are supported as much as humanly possible. Also, listeners, I will make sure that Amelia's email address is listed in the show notes. So if you do have any questions stemming from this podcast, you can reach out to her. Thanks, Caroline. Yes, one service that we offer through FACT is free one-on-one contact with parents. You know, I have to be very careful about how we go about these contacts because, of course, I am only licensed to practice law in the state of Mississippi. I am FACTS General Counsel. Our home office is located in Ohio, and Ohio allows me to be General Counsel. They allow General Counsels from any of the 50 states. So if you're not in Mississippi, I cannot give you one-on-one, quote-unquote, legal advice. But I am able to talk about the laws in general and help parents brainstorm solutions or point you to local resources in your area that may be more familiar with local policy, state policy where you live, and even contact for the OCR, different ways that they process claims, all of that I can discuss. So I really, really enjoy working and talking to families one-on-one, probably the most fulfilling part of the job. Well, we appreciate it. And listeners, Amelia just said OCR, and that's for Office of Civil Rights. I don't know if we clarified that earlier or not, but I just wanted to make sure we add that in. Yes, thank you, Caroline. Yes, OCR stands for Office for Civil Rights of the U.S. Department of Education, and they are the governmental agency tasked with making sure that schools abide by Section 504. 
Thank you so much, Amelia. Now, how can a parent determine what types of accommodations are needed? It's a little hard to figure this area out, at least in my mind. So what does asking for too much look like? What does asking for too little look like? Where does a parent or caregiver even begin? A good place to begin, again, is in our Civil Rights Advocacy Resource Center, where we have a sample list of accommodations provided for you. It's about eight pages long. Of course, it doesn't cover everything. It's just some samples. And some of the samples may look very similar to others. And that's because these accommodations were crafted for different ages, students of different ages or different maturity levels, different abilities. So you may see three involving riding a bus, but that's because it's for a different student, which is something really important to acknowledge here that Appropriate accommodations are going to vary from student to student who are the same age and have the same allergies because accommodations, as we discussed with the first question in the the CDC guidelines, accommodations are individualized. So you should only ask for accommodations that your student needs, not just some blanket accommodation. You know, don't take the whole eight page sample list in and say, I want all these accommodations because it's not appropriate for your student. Also, you know, we have seen schools in the evaluation process after a parent's requested an evaluation say, your student doesn't need a 504 plan because we have food allergy guidelines that cover the whole district in place. We have food allergy policies. But again, those blanket food allergy policies for the district or for the school do not account for individual needs of the student. So it's very important throughout this whole process of seeking accommodations that you keep the focus on your student's individual needs because what may be appropriate for your student may not be appropriate for the other and vice versa. So by starting with that list, you have some sample of where to begin. And it also breaks it down into areas, you know, communication between the school and you, communication between the school and other parents, classroom management, cafeteria, you know, mealtime, special activities, music class, are they going to share musical instruments, art class, is there allergens in the art supplies, you know, so those special classes, extracurricular activities, parties, celebrations, substitute teachers, we have all those broken down into categories for you to, to begin with. And it's perfectly okay if you're looking at that list and you see the samples that are there and you think of something not on that sample list, but you feel it would be beneficial for your student. It's entirely appropriate to ask for that. You as the parent have a better idea of what your student needs. You have a better idea than I do. You have a better idea than the school administrators do or the teachers or the counselors or even the school nurse. You know your student better than anyone. So you are the best person to determine what your student needs. Now, that said, Caroline, you asked, you know, what does asking for too much look like? In my one-on-one talk, and this is with a parent, and this is an example I always use because it's just, it's a very dramatic illustration of asking for too much. Parent calls, very upset, or emails me, and we have scheduled a call, very upset that they requested that every student in their child's school wash their hands 10 times a day using bounty paper towels and dial soap because that's what they use at home and they know that's been effective. That really is too extreme in most cases. It was for that student anyway. So I had to brainstorm, as I said, that's what we do. 
or that's what I do with families, we had to brainstorm because we explain, you know, what we are seeking if we think of our child school as a house. And inside the house is our student safely, healthily, happily, and equally participating in everything the school has to offer. And we want to get in the house. Well, the way the mom wanted to get in the house was, you know, through the front door was every student in the school, the dial soap, the bounty paper towels, excessive. Or that's never going to happen. I don't know a school out there that's, even with COVID, that's going to have 1,500 plus students wash their hands 10 times a day with dial soap and bounty paper towel, especially given the, the limited resources school have, which has even been magnified by COVID. So we had to figure out how to, if you want to use the house analogy, climb in through a window to get to what the student needed, which was to be inside safely, actively, healthily participating. So we said, okay, you know, when are these students going to have food protein on their hands? Usually when they get to school in the morning because of eating breakfast, after food is consumed, and possibly, you know, playing outdoors on playground equipment and things of that nature if they go straight from the cafeteria from eating outdoors. So those are the main areas we look at. So I said, okay, let's let's try to reduce it to, you know, washing hands after these high-risk times. And do we really need all 1,500 plus students in the school to wash their hands at these times? Or do we just need those students that your child's going to come in contact with, the students in your child's classroom and so on and so forth? Which I know, given COVID, every student should be washing their hands. But for families that have sought this accommodation before and prior to COVID, this was one of the top two requests that schools denied was hand washing. So it's important that we Focus on what the individual student needs, which is the students that they're going to come in contact with to wash their hands. And then thirdly, dial soap and bounty paper towel. That's great. That's what you use in your house. But studies have shown pink commercial soap and the brown paper towels that most schools have are equally effective. So long as you're washing your hands with soap and drying them with a paper towel, you should be good to go. It's not hand sanitizer, which we know does not remove food protein. So really, we had to pare down the parents' request from something that they were never going to get to something that was more realistically needed for their student. Now, as far as asking for too little accommodations, looking at that sample list will help you if you're afraid you have not asked for enough because it does give you other ideas of possible accommodations that your child might need. But also, once you get a plan in place and your child goes to school, you may see that you missed an accommodation. You missed an area of accommodation that is impacting your student. And the great thing about 504 plans and even IEPs is if they're not working, you can ask to have another accommodation meeting. You can sit down and say, okay, these are problems we're having. We need to come back to the table and figure out how we're going to address it. So once a family really gets a handle on this, like what accommodations might be needed, what are the next steps now? So can you bring listeners through some suggestions of steps for actually requesting those accommodations? Certainly. As we just discussed, the types of accommodations, the specific accommodations that you would like to request for your student, that is another thing that is really good to start working on even prior to submitting your request for an evaluation for accommodations. So I would do that as part of the legwork, the initial research, at least begin on that. Because once you submit your written request for an evaluation for a Section 504 plan, then the school has their time limit when they have to do the evaluation. You have the evaluation request, and then you actually have the evaluation, which is the school district saying, okay, does this child meet the requirements 
of Section 504 or the ADA for an accommodation plan? Does this child have a disability that needs an accommodation plan? And as discussed earlier, some schools say, no, we have great food allergy policy in place, or no, you can have an IHCP, when in reality, food allergies can meet the definition under the ADAA of a disability, and you should be afforded this accommodation plan, and your student should be afforded an accommodation plan. So the eligibility meeting will be held. Parents should be present as part of the 504 team. And once eligibility is determined, and once your student is determined to be eligible for a 504 plan, that can be the end of the first meeting, or you can roll right into the second meeting of the same sitting. You know, schools are going to do it different ways. They all have their different procedures. But the second meeting is actually establishing the accommodations. And this is when you sit down with the school 504 team, which would likely consist of the school nurse, teachers, the administrator, 504 coordinator. It's going to vary, you know, any extracurricular, any coaches, you'll have your 504 team. And that's when you actually start discussing the accommodations that you're requesting. Once you reach some sort of consensus, this will be reduced to writing and that will be your 504 plan. And of course, every district has their own forms and they like to do things a different way. So no 504 plan from district to district is going to look the same. So that's something to keep in mind too. Just because yours doesn't look like mine doesn't make it any less effective. So you mentioned just a few minutes ago that the schools have a time limit. What did you mean by that? Once you submit your written request for an evaluation for a Section 504 plan, there is a certain limit of time in which the school must determine eligibility. And as I said earlier, that's going to vary state to state, sometimes district to district, because there is no hard line rule that these have to be done in a certain time period as IDEA states for an IEP, but they have to be done within a reasonable time. And every district and state should have a specific time limit. I just can't speak to it because it does vary state to state and district to district. If that's a problem you have and you can't find your information on the timeline for your district, I can always help you find a local organization, someone in your state that can help you figure that out. And that makes complete sense that basically your request doesn't get tabled for the entire school year. Exactly. It is set up with time limit to ensure that your child's rights under these federal disability laws are protected. Good to know. Now, Amelia, you and I both know that sometimes the best laid plans get absolutely disrupted. Maybe there's a classroom change or a teacher change or something happens. So what should a parent do if they hit a roadblock or maybe they hit some unexpected challenges either while establishing the accommodations or even like after the accommodations established and maybe there's even been a violation of the accommodation? What do you suggest parents and caregivers do here? Well, that is a lot to unpack, Caroline. So let's start with a roadblock. Say you hit a roadblock in the evaluation stage of seeking an accommodation plan. Now, there are resources on our website that link you to documents that say these students with food allergies should be given an accommodation plan. I can point you to those resources. We can brainstorm and figure out things. If you contact me and request a call, You may have a situation like the mother who requested too much, not saying that you're requesting too much, but there may be a situation where the school says, we're not giving that accommodation. Your student cannot have that accommodation. In that 
area, I try to get caregivers to think of the why. We always ask why. Why do we want this certain accommodation? If the school is not going to give you an accommodation that she requested, explain the why and then say, okay, this why is why I want this accommodation for my child. If you cannot give me the accommodation I'm requesting, then I'm going to need you as a school district to come up with an alternate accommodation that meets the objective of the accommodation I requested, that meets the why. A lot of times districts cannot come up with a substitute accommodation and will implement your accommodation. But if they do come up with an accommodation that you feel might reasonably work, a lot of times it's beneficial to allow those accommodations to go into place with the acknowledgement that if it does not work, you can always come back to the table. It's always important to have a very collaborative approach with the school throughout this whole process. I try to remind parents that typically educators do not go into education for the money. We know that in most places in the country, they are underpaid, overworked, and underappreciated. And we've especially seen this during COVID-19. So it's always important to remember that while that administrator who is now making more money may be a little standoffish and may be more bureaucratic now, that they were once probably a teacher who got into education because they wanted to better the life of a student. That's why we also really emphasize keeping the focus on your student. Take a picture of your student to the meeting if they're not old enough to go with you or mature enough to go with you and put it on the table. If you're really having problems, sometimes it's helpful to take a picture of your child when they're having a reaction so that the educators can see just how severe this can be for your child. It's also important to focus on the fact that we are dealing with life or death situations in anaphylactic reactions. It's also beneficial at times to tell stories of other students who have had bad outcomes from allergic reactions at school. I usually use Sabrina Shannon's story and I can never get through it without crying, which in turn could seem manipulative, but it's always sincere because Sabrina's story is just so impactful in that there were so many different places where if something had been done differently, she might be with us today. So it really highlights all the different places where if any little thing had been done differently, it could have made all the difference in the world. And usually by the time I get through, there's not a dry eye in the room. So that is another tactic to try to get the schools to really understand the severity and the importance of what we're requesting. You also mentioned if accommodations have been violated, what to do. Again, you can come back to the table. You can request another 504 meeting. You can request retraining of teachers. You know, it really depends on what the violation is. You can reach out to FACT for one-on-one contact to brainstorm additional solutions Or you can file a complaint with the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights. As stated before, they are the governmental entity tasked with ensuring that schools abide by Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. We have documents about OCR complaints in our Civil Rights Advocacy Resource Center. And of course, you can also go to the U.S. Department of Education's webpage for the OCR. Additionally, because Section 504 is the way it is, you can file a federal lawsuit. It's not something I typically recommend a parent or caregiver go out and say, you didn't make little Susie wash your hands before lunch. So 
I'm going to file suit against you. Again, that's, you know, an extreme example, but I use it to really bring home the fact that federal lawsuits are not usually the best approach here. And OCR complaints are not always the best approach. A lot of times keeping that focus on collaboration with the school is going to be, is going to result in the most positive outcome for your student. That said, you know, we do have times where that does not work. Schools will dig their heels in. Things can become very adversarial, even though the 504 process should not be adversarial at all. If you are in a situation where you do feel things are adversarial, take a step back. Take an advocate with you. That's a possibility. We can give you a list of local resources or places to find resources in your area to find an educational advocate to go in with you, to find an attorney that may be willing to go into a meeting with you. Just know if you take an attorney with you, the school district is probably going to insist on having their attorney present as well. So again, it creates a more adversarial environment than might be necessary. But education advocates are great if you hit that point where things are completely spiraling out of control. But we would hope, in fact, that before you get to that point, you reach out for someone to talk to. A lot of times talking with another parent in your school district who has an older child with food allergies, who is familiar with this school, they may give you ideas. Local support groups are great resources for connecting with other parents who may have dealt with similar issues with your district. And they may have other ideas that you haven't thought of and that I couldn't even think of. There's always great resources out there and I'm always available. Well, Amelia, this has been an amazing time with incredible information, but we are coming to the end of our show. So before we depart, do you have any words of wisdom you'd like to share with listeners outside of all the words of wisdom you've been sharing? Well, again, I think, you know, keeping the focus on your individual student is important. Trying to remain collaborative with the district is important. Doing your homework is important. And preparing is important. Documenting everything. Conversations about accommodations that don't take place in the accommodation meetings or, you know, as we've seen in COVID-19, sometimes these meetings are done via email, paper chain. That is fine. So long as you have it documented, you should be okay. Document everything. Put it in writing. If you discuss something with a teacher or a coach And it is a verbal discussion. Follow it up with an email and say, you know, I just want to make sure that we're on the same page from our conversation earlier. My understanding is all snacks provided to the band will be peanut free. Something of that nature. Document it, send it back and make sure there's an acknowledgement of it so that you do have that agreement in place. And again, like I said, the fact Civil Rights Advocacy Resource is very voluminous. It took um, months to create. So there is tons of resources there and at your disposal. It is all free. And again, you can always email me at my email address that's going to be in the show notes and we can schedule a call to brainstorm some, some accommodations or situations that you're dealing with. I'm always here. I love helping individual families always at your disposal for free. We appreciate you to no end, Amelia. Thank you for carving out time for us today. And listeners, I promise you those show notes are going to be packed of information. Make sure you don't miss them. And one more time, thank you, Amelia. We really appreciate you. Thank you, Caroline. Before we say goodbye today, I just want to say thank you one more time to Amun for being a kind sponsor of Facts Roundtable Podcast. 
Thank you for listening to Facts Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.